Hello there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast, where we share practical therapy tips and ideas for busy speech-language pathologists. Grab your favorite beverage and sit back as we dive into this week's episode. Welcome to the SLP Now podcast. I am so excited to have a returning podcast guest today. Um, Lauren LaCroix Haynes uh, is going to be talking about all things prompts and queuing, all the scaffolding. Um, I get quite a few questions about this topic, and I saw that Lauren presented um, at her at her school in her district on this topic. So I thought. I reached out to her and she said yes. So we're going to be diving into all the things scaffolding. Um, But before we do that, I just want to reintroduce Lauren. Um, She is a graduate of Louisiana State University and has been a school-based speech-language pathologist in the Baton Rouge area for over 12 years. She serves as an SLP and lead special education teacher at a local primary school. And she is also the author of the website, busybeespeech.com, and she sells speech therapy-related resources on Teachers Pay Teachers. Um, And today, like I said, we're going to be focusing on prompts and cues, and I'm just super excited to dive into this with you. Yeah, I'm so excited too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and the last episode was... It's episode 14, if any of you are listening and are curious, Um, but we talked about fluency and that one was definitely a crowd favorite. So (laughs) extra, extra excited about this one. Um, But before we dive into prompts and cues, I was really curious about, because I found out about this um, when you were sharing about your presentation um, and Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this was related to, you were giving this presentation because of your role at your school, right? Yes, I am um, lead teacher at my school, so I am over all of the special education teachers and the paraprofessionals, and then uh, twice a year we have staff development day, and on this particular staff development day, I was in charge of presenting to the paraprofessionals, um, just at my school level. Um, so we talked about prompting and we talked about behavior. So it was fun. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know that like it's really cool that it's – I just love hearing what other SLPs do and kind of the different roles that they end up taking on. Um, so thank you for sharing a little bit about that. Um, I know that it sounds like that role includes a lot more than – presenting twice a year though, right? Oh, for sure. Okay. So (laughs) as lead teacher, um, I'm responsible for um, checking all of my special education teachers' paperwork. Like I have to make sure their IEPs are good to go before we hold the meetings. If they have any kind of procedural questions, I'm the one they go to. Um, I help them write behavior plans for kids. I step in and model different techniques and different ways to um, handle those challenging behaviors. So I'm extremely busy with that all day long. It's almost like two like full-time <laughs> jobs in one. But um, the good thing is I do have only half of a regular SLP caseload. Um, so I only have about 20 speech kids that I work with. And then the rest of my time is um, helping the teachers and the paras and basically putting out a lot of fires. <laughs> so 
Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. I didn't realize that it was, because at first I was wondering, like, how does she do all that? And I I still wonder because you have a lot of different things on your plate. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But that's helpful that at least your time is like split a little bit. So it's not completely impossible. Right. It's, it's a lot easier to write 20 progress reports than 50. So <laughs> it yes, does help. For sure. <laughs> that is amazing. Um, yeah. And then like, because you said that part of the role includes doing some presentations and mm-hmm. teaching and really working on that collaboration. Um, I'm, and this definitely won't be the focus of our chat today, yeah. but um, I know that like a lot of SLPs reach out to me about that too, in terms of like stepping outside of their comfort zones and like giving a presentation to a group of teachers or paraeducators or anything mm-hmm. like that. And I'm curious if you have any like quick tips or things that worked for you, like the first couple times you did that. I mean, it sounds like you've been. Um, at this for over 12 years now. So you've, you're definitely further down the road, but any tips for those starting out? Sure. Well, lead teacher, I've only been for three years. This is my third year. Um, so I haven't done that role as long, but as an SLP at first, I mean, by nature, I'm more introverted, more quiet, um, which is, you know, kind of different for SLPs. I think a lot of SLPs are very bubbly and lots of talk and they like to talk a lot, but not me. Um, so it took a while for me to gain that confidence, I guess, in myself and in my skills. So um, I, I had to kind of get to a point to where I was ready to be able to present to a lot of people. I mean, you have to push yourself. I mean, that's one thing I would say. Um, I wasn't like <laughs> I didn't just want to do it. Um all the time or anything like that. But whenever I stepped into this lead teacher role, I kind of just had to become this other version of myself because I had to do all the things that I wasn't used to do. And for this position, I was basically voluntold, I guess, to be put in this position because our other lead teacher had moved on to a different role. And so they asked me to do it. And, um, and I also have a hard time saying no. So, (laughs) so I um, said, yes. And so when I did that, I had to just kind of I guess, put on my big girl pants and just be brave and try new things. And um, I think it, it really benefited me in the long run because it made me a lot more confident because other people were depending on me. So I guess to a new person, I would just say, just find that confidence in yourself and in your abilities. And um, don't be afraid to ask questions and do your research because you do know more than you think, you know. (laughs) Yeah, that was one of my takeaways too, when Mm -hmm. I was like navigating, talking to teachers in the beginning um, because I really wanted to do like, I always talk about curriculum-based therapy and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And you really need uh, the teacher buy-in to like optimize what you're doing with that. Um, So I I was so scared the first time Mm -hmm. that I talked to the group, but um, yeah, put on those big girl pants and make Mm -hmm. it happen. And like what came out of it was amazing in terms of the actual results of having that conversation with all of the teachers. Um, But it was also really good for me to continue growing as a professional because I definitely, like you prepare for what you're going to share, which like solidifies your knowledge and Mm -hmm. then um, just, yeah, putting yourself out there and like showing up as the 
um, expert and knowledgeable person that you are is pretty amazing. So highly yeah. recommend it to all of the <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah. And like, if you kind of step into that role in small ways first, it builds your credibility yes. too. So you can offer a lot of suggestions just one-on-one with teachers and then maybe join like your leadership team, which is what I did before I became lead teacher. They asked me to be on the leadership team. So I did, and I could give suggestions there, which benefited, you know, multiple um, grade levels. And so it was just, you know, it kind of gradually, I built that credibility. So, um, and people learned to, I guess, respect my ideas and my opinions because the things that I would share, you know, would, would definitely benefit the kids, which good because we had that expertise in that language, you know? Yeah. And I love the way, because we're going to be talking about scaffolding. So mm-hmm. we can scaffold ourselves and mm-hmm. maybe first like talk about like teach something or share a strategy with one teacher and then mm-hmm. as it as needed, like share it with the whole group and all that. I like it. Yeah. Step by step. Mm-hmm. So individual small groups, <laughs> all that good stuff. <laughs> right. Perfect. Um, so thank you for kind of taking that little digression there. Um, but let's get into the topic for today, which okay. is uh, prompting and cueing. So mm-hmm. um, can we start out just by defining both of those? Yes. So prompts and cues are strategies that can help the student, but it still increases their learning. And a lot of educators, a lot of um, teachers in SLPs, they'll do this naturally. Um, we automatically will just ask questions and try to help students come up with the answer or learn a task in basically any way we know how. But it does help to define what we're doing and to be more purposeful with our interaction. So if we know those terms, and the differences, I think um, it helps us as well as the kids in the long run. So there's prompting and then there's cueing and they can be different from each other, though sometimes it might depend on who you ask because those terms can be a little bit interchangeable. But from my research, um, prompting is said to be the little more invasive of the two. So um, that one would be the prompts are the ones that lead the student to the correct answer more directly. And then if you're talking about cueing, that's more like a hint or a clue and that typically doesn't give them the answer directly. So it's more indirect. Um, so cueing is the one that's more indirect and prompting is the one that's more direct, but if it's okay with you today, I might just use the term prompting as the broader term to refer to just any type of assistance because I don't want to keep saying prompt slash cue. <laughs> that is perfect. <laughs> okay. Um, I know a lot of people that might bother a lot of people. Oh, no, that's a cue. No, that's a prompt, but it's, it's just assistance right now. <laughs> um, So if we're purposeful in the way that we help students and we prompt when necessary and then we fade prompts as soon as we can, I mean, it can really help. And that's why I did want to teach the paras at my school about those different ways to prompt as well as the importance of backing off on the prompts. Um, Because, you know, we want our students to be as independent as possible and we don't want to overly assist them. Um, And that's why we would rather give them more indirect cues so they can come up with the answer on their own. But you know, in general, prompts themselves are not a bad thing. And if if you do them right, it will not only help them learn, but um, it will, you know, aid them in that learning and it won't give them any kind of a crutch. Yeah. And I love that distinction of like, they're definitely helpful, mm-hmm. um, but we want to be careful to not over prompt or over cue mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, because that can also hurt in the long run. Yes. Um, 
So yeah, super helpful. Um, and then anything else that you want to talk about in terms of like um, why we want to prompt and cue or are we good to t- start diving into the different types? Um, yeah, we can talk about kind of why they're beneficial. Um, sometimes it's really the only way that a student can learn a skill. You can't expect a student just to know what to do without some kind of assistance, right? Um, and honestly, we use prompts ourselves, whether we realize it or not. Like when we're in Target, we look up at the aisle signs to help point us to what we're looking for. And then if we still can't find the item, we ask someone who works there and then we may need even need them to point the item out to us, you know? So, um, and then after that, the next time we go into Target, we probably won't need any prompts to find the item because we already know exactly where it is. We'll just go straight there and find it independently. So it helps them. It helps our kids also when they're learning a new skill. Um, But if you do want the student to become fully independent, you have to be able to decrease those prompts. You don't want them to become prompt dependent. And I did want to I wanted to say that on the front side so that, you know, like that's our goal is for them to be independent, Um, because that could if you if they become dependent on those prompts, it could hinder their progress. Um, So fading those prompts is almost as important as giving the prompts. So things that you can do to prevent prompt dependency might be things like uh, rewarding or reinforcing with with the prompts first. But then as they progress, you only reward when they respond correctly without those prompts. Um, This could help the student like learn the skills more quickly, as well as kind of prevent them from depending on the prompts. So. That fading is really important. And then what's really essential, though, is just to make sure that the whole team is on that same page about that prompt fading schedule and the reinforcement schedule. So that's one of the main reasons that I wanted to talk to my SPED staff about it, because I wanted everyone to know the prompting hierarchy and the importance of trying to fade the prompts quickly. Um, Because I have some paras that love to help the students and they mean well, but sometimes it can be a little too much <laughs> and I want them to know how to back off the assistance appropriately and then how to reinforce them, you know, correctly, the correct way. Um, and then on the other hand, I have like some of my new apparas, they still aren't really sure what to do and how to help. So they need some general guidance on like the different ways that are available to support the students in the classroom they might not know about. So whenever I met with them, we talked about those things um, a lot. And then we also discussed, you know, IEP accommodations and different types of support we could give during tests and in the classroom and then like learning new skills and all that. Um, because, you know, it's a lot to remember. So like, especially even to the most veteran teachers and parents, like refreshers are important. So um, we had a really good meeting and I'm, you know, I'm really happy that we, we got a chance to talk about all of it. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, and then I'm curious to because um, I think for SLPs who, because this is kind of like a dual presentation, I think it's a good overview for us just to kind of take an inventory of the strategies that we're using in therapy. Mm-hmm. And I think we've, a lot of us, or pr- pretty much all of us, do a lot of this yes. automatically. Um, but I think it's really helpful to have the terminology and like when it comes to um, like, writing about what we do, I think what you're sharing today will be incredibly helpful just to have like more of a um, a stronger set of vocabulary around describing all the different things that we do um, because there's some pretty nifty terms that you're going to be sharing. Um, and then um, I think it's also helpful because it can 
because you presented this to your paraeducators. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it'll be helpful because I'm sure you'll present it in a very similar way. Um, so SLPs can use this when they are presenting to their teachers or paraeducators um, to just give kind of to help with that conversation as well. So I'm really excited about the dual purpose of this. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I mean, it's really, um, it's important for you to have that good framework in your mind. So when you share it with others, you're clear, you know, so mm-hmm. that yes. the kids, you know, that you hold, your whole team can be on the same page and the kids are ultimately the ones that benefit from it the most. Yeah. I love that. And I'm really curious too, um, because like we know that you gave a presentation mm-hmm. to the paraeducators, um, but what is the best way, or do you have any tips when it comes to communicating the appropriate level of prompting? So, like once we have that shared vocabulary, mm-hmm. um, like what would you do? Like if, how would you communicate that? Like the level of support that Johnny needs with um, certain tasks, for example. Um, well, a lot of things will depend on the student and what, and what the skill that the skill that we're working on or whatever. So I gave them a hierarchy of the different levels of prompting that we use. And then we talk about like, okay, well, what have you tried so far, you know, um, and kind of to try to see what level that they're at. And we'll go more into depth on, in detail of this a little bit later, but, um, I, since we've already talked about it, I can use, reference that visual, that hierarchy that I gave them and say, okay, let's talk about the prompts that you're already giving them. How are you helping? You know? Um, so that's, I guess that's one thing that I would do. I would use the terminology that we already went over. And if they needed more help with that, like if they weren't sure, I would model for them or explain to them or scaffold for them <laughs> how I, w- I would do it. Yeah. And I think if we have the opportunity to go into the classroom, um, like that could be a good follow-up step. Like mm-hmm. maybe I might model something um, and tell them, okay, so this is the level that I'm going for. Like see what you can identify in me and then maybe observing them in an activity and be like, oh, I saw these – or like where did you think you were at? So that it's – because it can be very – like it's hard to talk about if we're just in hypothetical. Oh. So I think getting super specific could be helpful too. Yes. Okay. So I didn't, maybe I didn't understand your question, but during my presentation, I had YouTube videos and um, I love it. Yeah. And so I showed them the different um, examples of the prompts. So I had videos, there's tons on YouTube, by the way, like if y'all ever do any kind of presentation, like um, there's examples of like all the different types of prompts. So I showed them an example of each one. And then after we went over all of them, um, I had them practice with each other and divide into groups and did groups of two. And then they had to come up with a scenario and do their type of prompt that they were supposed to be practicing. And then they showed the group. Ooh, so smart. Yeah. I <laughs> love those ideas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's definitely like, we can use scaffolding here. We can, yeah. Um, give them the definition first, like mm-hmm. explain what we're doing. Then we can show a video of it. We can have them like practice it with a partner and then we could kind of reinforce it mm-hmm. in the classroom then. Mm-hmm. So we're being very strategic with <laughs> our own prompting and cue yes. with our colleagues. <laughs> no, I love that. And I think that makes it because I think we can apply this to any type of skill that we're trying to share with um teachers or paraeducators. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I'm really happy with this discussion so far. <laughs> okay. um, 
Okay, so are we ready to start talking about the hierarchy and mm-hmm. the different types of prompts and cues? Yes. Okay, so the prompting hierarchy I used um, was from the Autism Helper, and that's, um, I think her name is Sasha, and she's at autismhelper.com, and she has like a really nice visual of the hierarchy that we, that, um, that they use. And there are a lot of hierarchies out there, especially related to ABA and programs like that. But I just thought that this one lent itself best to a variety of disorders, not just autism, but really because I had um, parents and teachers from like that worked with all levels of students. Um, So she has that great visual for the most intrusive prompts, which are like the ones that the student would be the most dependent um, all the way to the least intrusive, which would be for the student to be the most independent. So obviously our goal is for the students to be completely independent, but depending on the student and the skills we might need to teach, we may have to give a lot of support, especially at first. So I wanted them to know the different levels and just depending on the kid where they might need to start. So um, I'm going to go over the different types of prompts and I'm going to start with the least invasive or the most independent level, if that makes sense. Um, So that most independent level would be the visual prompt. And that is a prompt that is uh, support in the form of pictures or text, photos, or even videos. And this one is a great way to give support in a way that's kind of natural and it's really easy to fade. Um, Examples can be anything from like a sign on the door to a visual schedule. Um, I've also made visuals for the steps of going to the bathroom or completing morning routines for my students. And then like that's for the classroom. And then in speech, of course, I use this one like nobody's business. <laughs> like visuals are for everything. <laughs> um, I have like sentence strips for expanding utterances and using correct grammar. Um, I have pictures for WH questions. Uh, I have like I made a product on TPT that's like an inferencing product that's leveled and the di- the scaffolded and leveled based on the visual supports. Um, so pretty much I use visuals for a lot of language skills and it's like my go-to way that I level that support. Um, and then it's super easy to fade because you can just take away that visual. So that is visual prompting. Um, And then the next level would be verbal prompts. And that is like spoken instructions or questions that provide the student with direction on completing the task. So this one can look a lot of different ways and it's probably the most commonly used. And I feel like there's like a mini hierarchy within verbal prompting because there's like a direct verbal prompt, which is when you like plainly give them the answer and then there's more indirect, um, which is like just giving them more like a subtle hint, not the exact answer. Um, But if you want me to, I can dive a little bit deeper into the verbal cues um, and talk a little bit about that hierarchy within them. Let's do it. Okay. I love it. Good. Um, So I did a little bit of research and like a study that I saw a study that showed that um, kids improve their literacy literacy skills um, when you follow the hierarchy to where you would comment would be like the least invasive, like a, using a comment. And that would be like when you verbally provide that information about the topic or like you model your thinking. So you might just say like, oh, I think frogs like to swim in ponds. Like you're just kind of giving them a, a comment um, when you're reading a book or whatever. 
And then, so the comment would be that first one and then the question and then questions would be like, um, you could ask a open-ended question like um, that might give a variety of possible responses. And then there would be a closed question, which is like you want them to say a specific response and then like a yes, no question. So and then um, there'll be like a direction. So like, tell me this, like, tell me the frog lives in the pond. So that was a little hierarchy kind of in itself. Like, so it kind of goes from comment to question to direction. And then there are lots more other indirect prompts that um, that I use, which is like close procedures. And that's when you fill in the blank. Um, so like the SLP might say the first part of an utterance and the child would finish it. So um, you might say she, like if we're, um, I don't know if we're looking at a picture and I want them to label, I could say she's putting on her and they would say shoes or, or whatever. Um, so that would be close. And then expansions was as whenever the student gives a response and then the SLP would expand upon that response using an appropriate grammar and vocabulary. So if the student would say something that might be grammatically incorrect, you would just say it in the correct way. So if he said him dirty, you might say, yeah, he was very dirty. Like you would just say it correctly and expand it to where it was a little bit of a longer utterance. Um, and then giving choices is also a a verbal considered a verbal prompt um, binary choice so you would give uh, a child a choice between two responses so where's the dog was he in the yard or in the house um, and then there's also modeling and imitation which as SLPs we do all the time we use that strategy for expanding language utterances as well um, you would say the dog was in the yard where's the dog and so then they would say okay yeah in the yard because you just modeled the correct response um, so like if you're working on sequencing, you could say, uh, what did the boy do next? And that might kind of be a little bit more indirect. And then you could just kind of make your way and get more direct and more direct into where you're just saying, okay, what is this? This is a, this is a book. What is this? <laughs> and they would have to say book because you told them exactly. So, um, a lot of times I'll use those more direct prompts when teaching WH question to a student who might be really, uh, echolalic. Um, because they they need a lot more direction. Um, so I would say, what is this book? And then I want to, because I want them to say book and not just repeat my question, which is what happens a lot of times when um, you're working with kids with echolalia. So honestly, verbal prompts um, can be done a lot of different ways. And um, the possibilities for that one are like as endless as languages. But um but that's probably the most one that the one that's most commonly used, I would say. Yeah, and I love the breakdown of the different types of verbal um, prompts mm -hmm. and cues that we can give students. Mm -hmm. And I think it can be um, like just having that menu of options, I think, can be really helpful mm -hmm. if a student isn't quite giving it. We can kind of use this information just to help us problem solve a little bit of like, okay, here's what I did. Like, here's an inventory of the things I did. Um, and then here's what else I can try. So yes. I appreciate that over. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Um, so we did visual prompt and then right below that one is verbal prompt. And then the next one is gesture prompt. And honestly, and just, this is just 
Lauren talking, but I think that gesture prompting and verbal prompting can can sometimes be interchangeable with the level of support, depending on the type of gesture and the type of verbal prompt. So as they're kind of equally invasive, in my opinion, but um, on her hierarchy that she has, she has the gesture prompt as under the as underneath the verbal prompt. So a gesture is when you just give a gesture, like you point or you nod or you move to indicate the correct response like as you're giving the instruction. So this can even be looking at the student expectantly or looking in the direction of the correct answer as a gesture. But I do feel like this one's pretty easy to fade as well, since you just kind of gradually back off the gesturing. Um, of course, as SLPs, we will look at students expectantly a lot, especially with our minimally verbal friends, uh, to kind of give them that hint that we're waiting for them to respond. But another way that I gesture a lot in therapy is by pointing when I'm teaching WH questions. So like if there's a picture of a mouse driving a car, I might say, who's driving the car? I'm working on that question. Who's driving the car while I'm pointing to the mouse? over and over again. Um, so that's one way that I scaffold that. Or, I mean, gesturing can even be as simple as if it's a student's turn to participate, you might make eye contact and nod in their direction for them to take their turn. Um, but we do, I feel like I do this one, I use more of that point prompt in therapy when I'm trying to get that direct response from them. And then my just eye contact and nods are more indirect. With the gestures. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, are we ready for the next one? Yeah. So we have visual and then verbal and then gesture. And then um, the fourth one is modeling. And that is when you show the student what they are supposed to do before they do it. This is the one that we use a ton as SLPs, right? Like it's when we just show them what to do. So if you tell a student to touch their nose, you would touch your nose. Or if you are teaching a student a new skill like sweeping the floor, they watch you do it first and then they would try it. And then I think a lot of um, classroom teachers I work with use this in writing. So they provide the students with a strong model or um, an example of what strong writing is supposed to look like so that it gives the kids something to kind of go off of um, and it better prepares them for what's expected of them. But so that's kind of what they do in the classroom. But in speech, we do this like all the time with articulation, right? Like we modeled the correct productions of sounds and error. We even pull out a mirror so they can copy our mouths, like copy what our mouths are doing. And then we use that, that modeling and imitation when we're doing our tick, our tick therapy a lot. Like that's when we use. Um, and then we also encourage parents to use that modeling as well when kids are learning those new articulation skills. Um, so that one is modeling. And then the next invasive one would be a partial physical prompt. So this is when you're going in and you're physically guiding the student through the response with like a partial physical gesture, like a tap or a nudge. Um, so in this one, you're still touching the child, but you are giving them like minimal physical guidance. So like if you want the student to touch a certain object, you might like move their elbow in the direction of that object. You aren't completely hand over hand helping them at this point. It's a little more subtle. Um, I use this one when I'm teaching simple signs. So if I'm prompting the child to sign more and I've already modeled or I know the child knows it, like I might tap under their hands to help them initiate the sign to try to get them to sign more. Um, so that was that partial physical. 
And then our last one, like the last one on the hierarchy, the most um, dependent prompt would be the full physical prompt. So that is when you go in and you're physically guiding the student through the response with that full physical gesture. So you're completely like hand over hand, basically doing it for them. Um, it might be like doing the hand motions to a song with them or getting the student to make a sign and um, or maybe even like helping the student do a new action you're trying to teach them. Um, for example, like if you tell the student to clap his hands, you would then take his hands and make them clap. So, yeah, this one's the most invasive. So you want to fade this one as soon as you can because you don't want them to be dependent on that because they are not mastering the skill at all if you're completing the task for them. <laughs> so those are all the different types of prompts. Um, we went over from the least invasive to the most. I'm going to go over them again. It's visual, then verbal, then gesture, then modeling, then partial physical prompt, and then full physical prompt. Perfect. Um, and I love that just like, Short and sweet, lots of examples, mm -hmm. um, and just kind of reminding us of that hierarchy. I think just having that model to think about is super helpful. Mm -hmm. um, so now let's talk about application a yeah. little bit. Um, so how do we know when to use which type, and especially how do we communicate this to educators who don't have – I feel like it's like a sixth mm -hmm. sense of like – how we do the prompting and cueing. It just automatically happens. Um, so how do we communicate that? Yeah. Um, okay, so there are a couple of different ways that you can approach this when you're teaching a student a new skill, and a lot of it will depend on the student as well as the skill you're trying to teach. So you and your team might have to make some judgment calls and use your knowledge of the student, but I'm going to give you a few rules of thumb that you can use um, to kind of know when to use which type of prompt. And Speaking of like you and your team, I think that's part of the way we we can communicate this to our staff. Like it needs to be like they are part of our team, you know. So if we go about it in a as a team approach, like, OK, let's talk to the SLP, the special ed teacher, the paraprofessional who are going to be working with this student, you know, day in and day out. If you're all on the same page and you kind of go into it saying, okay, let's talk about how we're going to address this. And you come up with a plan together. Um, they feel like they're more involved. And then you can also, also lend your expertise in that area. So that keeps y'all, it kind of does both. It keeps you on the same page, as well as it teaches them the strategies they may have forgotten or might not be familiar with. Um, so the first approach is when you would go from like the least invasive prompt to the most invasive prompt. So you use the least intrusive prompt first, which according to our hierarchy would be the visuals. And then you would go down the hierarchy, adding more prompts only if you need to. So if you go back to our target example that I gave earlier, um, like I couldn't find my item by using the store signs. So I asked the store to, the clerk to help me, and he gave me the directions to find it, which is the verbal prompt. And then if I still can't find it, he could walk me over and point to the item on the shelf, which would be the gesture. Um, hopefully, I don't need him to model taking the item from the shelf, <laughs> but I might need him to physically help me if it's out of reach or something. <laughs> um, but when it comes to our students, it's really the same way. Like, 
We try visuals, and then we give clues with our words, and then we might point or gesture, and then if they still don't get it, we'll model, and then partially prompt them, phys um, prompt them physically, and then hand over hand if we need to. So this is a good approach if you're kind of if you're trying to assess how much of the skill the child can do independently. So you might start off using that if you want to see what the kid can do. Um, and another benefit to this one is that if this, that the student gets repeated time to respond to the requests and more practice time with that skill, since you're asking him to do the same thing over and over again. Um, so that's going from the least restrictive to the most restrictive. So the, then the second approach would be to do the opposite. Um, and in this case, you start with the most invasive and work your way up to the least invasive. So depending on the skill, you might start with the full physical prompt and then continually fade the prompts as they learn that skill. So if it's a skill that doesn't require physical prompting, like if you're working on answering questions, for example, you wouldn't you can't physically prompt that. Um, you might start with modeling and then work your way back from there. Like, well, I'll model the example or the answer and then I'll use a gesture and then I'll use verbal cues and I'll use visual. So you would go back. Um, but if you're teaching a student to sign, like if you're trying to teach them to sign more, you might hand over hand the sign when you're first teaching it. Um, then you may tap their hands to remind them to sign. Um, and soon you might just model the sign when you expect them to use it and then they'll imitate you. And then after that, maybe you don't need to do that anymore. You just need to point to their hands or look at them expectantly. And then you might just even be able to say, hey, what do you want? Or do you need more? And then they'll be able to make that sign on their own. So this approach is good. When, this approach is good to use whenever like a student is first learning something new. Um, you just want to make sure that you're fading those prompts when you can. Um, and then I was reading some research and I think it said that this approach resulted in fewer errors and quicker skill acquisition than the other way. Um, but I'm guessing it's probably because, um, like, as long as you're fading those prompts quickly, then that one would work better for those fewer errors. Because you're, like, you're starting off helping them, and then you're backing off, backing off, backing off. They know what to do after you show them. So, yeah. And how do you explain the, like, that fading to your paraeducators, too? Because mm -hmm. um, I feel like it's just something that, I was just trying to think about, like, how would I explain that? Um, because it, I feel like it's something that we just naturally mm -hmm. do to figure out. But so, like, did you come up with kind of more of a systematic way to explain that to them? Well, or what did that look like? What I used was that um, that visual hierarchy sheet that uh, from the Autism mm -hmm. Helper. And then I showed them the different levels. So... If we're fading, then we have to back up. Like we're, if you're physically prompting them, you have to be more hands off like on the next, try, the next try. So and then we have to constantly assess and see where we're at. So if they're, you know, hand over hand getting the student to try to cut with scissors, you have to eventually like try to see what they can do without that. Um, so mm -hmm. I gave them that hierarchy, but then at the same time, I, I kind of encourage them to back off a little bit. And then there's some other tips for using these prompts more effectively um, that I went over with them as well. And that was like the first one would be 
delay your prompting um, by and by decreasing that amount of time before you offer assistance. So basically you would wait a bit before going to that next level of prompting. So if you're going like the first way, like you might give them a verbal prompt and then wait three seconds before you give them the gesture prompt. So they have that hierarchy sheet, but they know like you want to give them a chance between those before you go to the next one. You know, um, you don't want to just automatically assume that they can't do it. You want to give them some good wait time. Um, and then, you know, if they're getting frustrated or whatever, then you would step in. Um, but if you can constantly decrease and like back off the, and lengthen the amount of time you wait before giving the next prompt, just to kind of give them that more independence or try to get them to, you know, respond appropriately, then you would do that. So you would decrease the amount of time before you offered assistance. And then you also want to gradually decrease the intensity of the type of prompt you're giving. So within each of those areas, within each of those types of prompts, there's kind of like many degrees of intensity that those prompts can be. Um, it's kind of hard to explain or um or show unless you're in the moment and you need to see what a kid needs. Um, but for example, like if you're doing the partial physical prompt, you want to fade from the wrist and then maybe to the elbow and then to the shoulder, then maybe stand behind them, then you can back away entirely. So just that constant trying to back off as much as possible. Um, or in the case of verbal prompts, you could start by like giving them that direct prompt and then on the next target, try close or try an indirect prompt. So they're constantly like learning how to, to do those things. And it's going to take time. It's going to be trial and error, especially for the newer one, the newer pair professionals. Like I feel like some of um, the ones that have been doing it for a while, they get to see the special education teacher and the classroom teacher and the SLPs modeling these types of prompts all the time. Um, so a lot of it might come with experience, but the more you can show them and the more you can teach them, the easier it'll get. Um, but another tip I tell them is to know how to reinforce appropriately to prevent that prompt dependence. So like I mentioned before, you want to praise the child or give rewards that will help the student become more independent. So if they are first learning, then sure, you know, reward them for completing that task prompted. But then after you have backed away from that type of prompt, only reward the student like if you're using a star chart or whatever. Um, you would only give them a star for the level of prompting that they're on currently. Um, and then that will motivate them to become more independent and try harder because you don't want them to depend on that assistance. So I tell them that. And then lastly, um, we talked about it's always important to evaluate the effectiveness of the prompt that you're using. So you want to use your observations and like, any data to make sure that the prompts being used are effective for that student. Um, it will also help you determine when you can fade the prompts um, and It'll help you, you know, in a lot of different ways. So you want to remember that each child is and each new skill even is different. So you want to make sure that you're taking really good data and you want to use that specific data to help you make those decisions. So you don't want to only rely on your previous experiences with that child or with that prompt, you know, with other children beforehand. You want to um, 
you know, maybe even do trial runs with levels of prompting and create a plan of action with your team. So it's important to take note, like in your data or tally sheets on what prompts you use and how invasive they were. And I feel like if you're teaching your paras to to take that data and then to mark that, then they're identifying the levels of promptings that they're used. So even if like you were modeling, they could take the data for you and then they could write the um they can write the prompts that you were using to get more familiar, familiar with those types of prompts. So just talking as a team to make sure that you're all on the same page when it just comes to all those prompting techniques is, is super important. And, you know, our teams aren't, aren't perfect, you know, but we, we try. And, um, and I, I felt like this, the little presentation that I gave, um, helped them and they they had some good things to say about it afterwards too and I felt like you gave them a little bit more empowered them a little bit more to to help the kids in new ways yeah and I I love those tips I think those are really helpful um and I'm curious too because I feel like every SLP has a slightly different strategy Mm -hmm. um but in terms of how I approach this like in my Mm -hmm. therapy sessions and I think it could be helpful um, like depending on what yeah. we're working on with the para educators. Um, but I like to collect just like a quick, like if I'm working on WH mm-hmm. questions, um, when a student walks into the session, I like to collect just like a quick little probe with maybe like five, usually five, maybe 10 um, questions just to see where they're at. And then their level of accuracy independently helps me determine how much support I'm going to yes. give. Um, and I need, cause I feel like I'm, I was constantly documenting the level of support and I felt like it was, it wasn't totally consistent. And this can maybe be like another thing mm-hmm. that we talk about. Um, but I, like I use that data to decide where, what types of support I want to give the student and how many of the supports I mm-hmm. want to give. Because I think we would respond a lot differently if they're at 20% accuracy versus 70% accuracy. Um, so I think that's a strategy that worked really well for me. And I love that you mentioned the data part too. Yes, I do the same thing, especially with my Arctic kids. I kind of like beginning of the session, do like 10, you know, 10 trials and see where they're at. And before we start like drilling, drilling to see how much, you know, modeling or like don't need to get out my tongue depressor or whatever that they might need. Um, so I do, I love that. Like, yes, take that initial data and then kind of figure out what supports will work for them and where might they be at. So like if you're working on inferences, when you ask them some inferencing questions, what could they do? But then if you gave them that visual, could they do it, you know, and then um, so on and so on. If you took them away or added, did they need to add, did you need to add more prompting to that? Yeah, no, that's super helpful. Um, And then, yeah, I'm sure that could generalize to the paraeducators too, or maybe we could even, if they're helping us generalize skills that we're targeting, we can let them know how the student did Mm -hmm. on the probe with us and have that um, kind of indicate the level of support that they use in the Yeah, classroom. and I do a lot of my therapy um, pushed in in the classrooms. So a lot of times um, the paraprofessional is in the room um, when I'm giving, th- when I'm doing therapy. So it's easy to grab if they're, you know, as long as they're not you know working 
specifically with another kid or whatever, if um, I can easily grab them and model something for them or show them um, a new way to support the student or, hey, he's been responding really well when I'm giving him these visuals. So next time, can you give him these visuals and see, you know, if you if he can do some the response, can he respond a little bit better? Um, so that's one thing that's good about push in. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, such a good strategy. Uh, and then I'm curious to, because um, I, I started to touch on this, but in terms of the documentation, especially if you're working with the team, like, do you use any kind of like template or anything to help document the level of support? Or have you found any helpful tips there in just making it, I think, teaching and like making sure everyone has the same vocabulary to start is super yeah. helpful. But do you have any kind of, I don't know, like template or anything that um, you use? I mean, I have tally sheets that I use and I, well, <laughs> I use SLP toolkit <laughs> and on there, there's on their little data section, there's um, a, a drop down of the type of prompt that you can use or you can type in notes. Um, but that's how I do my speech tallies. But then for the team, like for the SPED staff, everyone, like they're allowed to take data how they see fit. So I don't want to step on the special education teacher's toes too much with the way that she takes data. But I do encourage them to make a note of that support. Um, like on the data sheets that I had, I would always put like the type of prompt and then the level of prompt. So like, was it low, medium or high intensity? Um, or like a direct verbal prompt or indirect, that kind of thing. I try to, I try to be a little bit more specific. And so I would encourage them, the paras and the, and the uh, teacher to kind of jot down this type of support that they were using so that the, whenever another pair or another person is working with them, then they would be able to, to know where to start. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Uh, that's awesome. And I'm always looking for like different ways to, um, like document that yeah. consistently because I feel like if I say minimal mm -hmm. queuing, like that's probably something different mm -hmm. than <laughs> like everyone would interpret that mm -hmm. a little differently. Um, so I, like, I think that's super helpful. And I think like the shared vocabulary is a huge start. And if we can describe what we did using that vocabulary, then I think that's much easier to understand, right. um, just being able to be a little more right. specific. Um, so you definitely gave us the tools to make that okay. more doable. <laughs> um, and then I'm curious too, could we walk through just one more example? Because um, you mentioned your um, – like your inferences resource. So maybe we could just run through an example mm -hmm. there, maybe like a sample session. So um, like a student walks in and we're going to work on mm -hmm. inferences today. And so we do a quick mm -hmm. probe um, and let's say they're at 20% mm -hmm. accuracy. Um, so what would we do? Like what could we do after okay, that? Okay, so um... – it depends on the type of inferencing skill. So with my students, a lot of times they have to, in class, they have to answer inferencing questions and then they have to find text evidence. So a lot of those inferences, making inferences tasks are text-based. Um, so if I'm using a text, 
and I go through my level three or my like least invasive. So like just a text and I want you to answer an inferencing question and they're at 20%. Then I would pull a task that has visuals and, um, and the, the text. So for example, the resource that I have, it's three levels. And then the third level is just text. And the second level is text and a picture. So I would use that one. And then we would see where they were at on that one. If they got a higher percentage or if they were still pretty low, I might back up to just the picture prompt. Because that my first level is like just a picture, no text. Can they answer inferencing questions? Because that would tell me like if they still can't answer inferencing questions based on just a picture, then it doesn't matter. It's not the text that's hindering them. It's not like the language and the grammar and the syntax and all that that's getting in their way. It's the skill of inferencing in general. You understand? Like, um, so like I would have to back up to that level and start there. But if they performed a little bit, like a little bit better on the visual, on the text with the visual, that might just tell me, okay, well, they just need some more experience with, with, you know, interacting with the text. Um, but they had this visual that supported it so they could use those picture clues. So they just need a little bit more experience, um, using text to find, to make that inference or whatever. Um, then that would tell me I could stop at that level two and work on that to where they're a little bit at a little bit higher percentage and then go on to the one without the visuals where they're just using the text. Um, so that's kind of how I use that resource and how I would target that just kind of backing up because like making inferences, there's no physical prompting. <laughs> um, but, you know, if they could not do it at that level, then I back up to this level, then they would use that visual prompting. And then I would be using my verbal prompts. If that's not the case, then I would be using my gestures. And, this, you know, and then I would even go down to modeling. This is how we'd make inferences, you know, and you would constantly back up and back up until you, um, you know, you exhausted all your efforts, <laughs> basically. So um, that's how I would, I think that's how I would do that. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, and I and I think it's super cool and interesting just to hear how um, different SLPs approach it. And I think it's cool too because we can use we can use our clinical yeah. judgment. Um, so because you described uh, well, like starting with the probe, I guess we can decide if we want to use like the least to most mm -hmm. or most to least type of yeah. approach. Um, and so we could. Um, like if it's the first time we're introducing the skill, maybe we want to start with mm -hmm. most and do a lot of that modeling and all of those pieces. And then, because like these hypothetical examples are so hard because we're missing like all of the context that we use. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, I think that was a super cool way to like put these things together. Um, and I think that resource is really <laughs> genius <laughs> because it makes it so much easier to scaffold um, those, a, a skill that could be tricky to break down. Like if we just had a text mm -hmm. to look at. Um, so I think that's, I loved using that in therapy and I oh, super okay. appreciate it. Um, okay. Awesome. So is there anything else that you think is super important to address or any like last remarks or things you want to um, share? I mean, just like, I guess, we definitely, as SLPs, we don't want to keep these strategies to ourselves. So 
if you have this type of this knowledge and you've gotten some good practice with it, definitely I would encourage you to share those with your teachers and other educators so that you can provide that, um, that good support system for your students. So um, I guess that would be kind of my final thoughts just to, I would just encourage you just to keep at it and talk to your team. Yeah, and we just spent almost an entire hour <laughs> talking about Brown Sinking. Um, because I think, because um, I I have been getting like some questions about it, but I think if you had asked me a couple years ago, it's like, yeah, that's just mm-hmm. something we do. Like, there's not a whole talk about it. It's just, but it's definitely something that we have. Like, I mean, we went through a lot of school, and we spent a lot of time like building that knowledge and building those skills, um, and they're incredibly powerful for our students. And so, yeah, I completely yeah. agree that this is something, um, yeah, I think we just take for granted the knowledge and skills that we have. And this is definitely a skill set that can really benefit for our sure, students. Sure. Um, yeah. And thank you for breaking it down in such an easy to understand way. Um, I love, I'll be linking to your, like you have mm-hmm. a blog post about it and then I'll link to the yes. autism helper, um, so that other SLPs or other listeners can find that visual. Um, I'll also link to um, the inference resource that you mentioned um, because I think that's a really great example of um, some of the different strategies mm-hmm. that we can use. And um, so, one last thing: where can SLPs find you if they want to learn more about what you do or just read more? Yeah, you can find me at busybeespeech.com. That's my blog and my website. Um, I am on Instagram and Facebook at busybeespeech. And um, on Teachers Pay Teachers, I am Lauren McCore Haynes. So if you need to reach out, you can always email me at busybeespeech at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to the SLP Now podcast. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. So yes, you can earn ASHA CEUs for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your SLP friends. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get the latest episodes sent directly to you. See you next time.